Well, if you'll look in your bulletins with me at page 6 there, you'll see the text for this morning in Luke chapter 8 one more time. A couple of weeks ago in John's sermon, he took you across the lake, as it were, across the Sea of Galilee as Jesus with his disciples made that short journey. And uh, there in that, in that text that John covered, you, you saw that very familiar story about Jesus calming the storm, the storm of wind and rain on the middle of the lake. And as they arrived to the east side of the lake there, he calmed another storm, as it were, a storm inside of a man uh, who had in him a legion of demons. And in the context of those two accounts, John described to you how we misplace our fears so easily. And Luke continues the journey now back across to the, the original side of the lake where they had come from to be sure that we don't also misplace our faith. This is Luke 8, beginning in verse 40. When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I know that power has gone out from me. When the woman saw that she could not escape notice, she came trembling. And falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler's house and said, Your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only have faith, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the child's father and mother. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God will stand forever. Father, help us to believe this remarkable account. Help us to to trust you and to, to recognize that You who have power over all of the universe surely have the power to work such miracles as these. And even greater than these, you have the power to work faith in our hearts and our souls and the depths of our beings so that we would trust you and gain the life that you and only you can offer to us. Father, we pray that you would do that for us yet again today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. 
<clears throat> well, it's political campaign season again. I imagine that you've noticed that, right? Unless you've been holed up in your bedroom sick with the flu for the past two months and haven't gone to the door or looked out the window or answered the phone, then you probably don't know. But in case that's not happened to you, then you know. It's political campaign season. The signs are out in the yards, and the phone calls are coming to, I'm sure, not just my house, but yours too. I I hope, sort of, not for your sake, but for mine. And there are knocks on the doors even. You know, some candidates out canvassing the neighborhood with their volunteers, knocking on doors, talking to people about political matters. And, you know, it's all good and well. It's part of the, the American political process. I'm glad for it. But one of the things I don't like is the mailings. The mailings are incessant, aren't they? I mean, they, they've surely filled your mailbox, too. And inevitably, every campaign season, there is that one mailing. Unfortunately, it's not the only one, but it's the one category. It comes in its own category. It's the one that is it's a, a big placard kind of postcard thing, and it's divided in half. One side, whether it's left or right, maybe there's some theme to that, but one side is brightly colored, and it shows the candidate of favor smiling with, you know, some of your neighbors or maybe their family, a perfect sort of family, and there are colorful flowers blooming behind them, and all is happy and good. And the other side of the thing is black and white, of course, and it's a picture of the opponent, the opposing candidate, and it's a horrible picture. It's, you know, it's like a mugshot or something. And, you know, I, I hate that. I hate that mailing. You know, don't mail me that mailing. If you mail me that mailing, I won't vote for you. I don't care what you stand for. I won't vote for you if you send me that mailing, period. You know, when when they're doing that, when when candidates are trying to campaign before you, they're trying to convince you of two things about themselves. For one, they're trying to convince you that they have authority, some sort of authority. They, They want you to see that they have what I would call local authority. This is the one where they they say, I am a fourth-generation Texan, and my opponent's a carpetbagger from Oklahoma. (laughs) You don't want to vote for them. I have local authority. And, of course, they try to convince you that they have moral authority, too, right? They, They will explain to you how their opponent is going to vote for or has, in fact, voted for this and that and the other and how awful that is and I would never do that. I will vote for this in the other thing, which is morally much better. And so they're trying to persuade you that they have moral authority. And they're even trying to persuade you that they have relational authority. You know, you've seen the picture of whatever candidate standing with the governor, and they've got their arms around each other, or they're standing by each other, smiling broadly, and maybe they even have the thumbs-up sign. You know, and so it's sort of this picture that says... I know the governor, and the governor likes me, and so if you like the governor, vote for me because, well, I have the relationships that matter to this arena of life, and I have relational authority. So they want you to believe, to be convinced that they have authority. And building on that, they want you then to believe that they are worthy of your faith. You know, they, they're admitting to you that you, you don't know me, I'm a candidate, and we've not met, you don't know me, but you can trust me, you can believe in me that when I get to Austin or when I get to D.C., I'm going to do what's good for you. 
they want you to believe that they have authority and that they're worthy of your faith. Now, again, I'm not criticizing the system so much as just observing the flaws of the people who are in it, including myself. We all bring our own flaws to it. And in each political cycle, it starts over again, and, and you're never quite satisfied with it because there's always something to be cynical about, right? You're never, never completely convinced, and maybe you shouldn't be. Luke here in Luke chapter 8 is doing something similar, but in a much better way. He, he's, he's campaigning, as it were, for Jesus by giving us some accounts of the things that happened in and around the Sea of Galilee early in Jesus' ministry. Remember Luke's purpose, his stated goal at the beginning of his gospel. He had told his friend Theophilus, I'm writing all of these things to you so that you may have certainty about the gospel and about this Jesus of whom I'm telling you, so that you can have certainty about these things. Now, in chapter 8, Luke has given us these accounts of these things, and these are things that you find in the other Gospels as well, because they're so important. He's given us the account of, of this storm on the middle of the lake, and Jesus, sleeping in the boat, awakes to his disciples' distress, and stands and calms the storm with a word and demonstrates, of course, his authority over the natural world. And then they arrive on the other side of the lake, and there's this man, this, this out-of-control wild man out in the, in the wilds next to the lake who's, who is possessed by a legion of demons, and Jesus casts them out with a word into the pigs. And so he demonstrates by his action that he has authority over the spiritual world. And now he's come back to the other side of the lake and he's demonstrating by his actions with this physical malady of this woman and and death itself that he has authority over the physical world. And he has authority over all of creation is is what Luke is after us to, to recognize and to believe. And because this man Jesus has such authority, such broad ranging and such deep authority, You must have faith in him. Ultimately, that's what Luke is after here. And so here, Jesus meets two daughters. One of them is a bruised reed in in Isaiah's terms, and one of them is a faintly burning wick, you might say. One of them, after only 12 years of life, is dying. And one of them, for 12 years, has been dying. Two daughters who have in common one faith, a faith that will seem most needed when you are desperate. Now, verse 40, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. This is probably back in Capernaum. Luke doesn't tell us where, what town they are, but it's probably back in Capernaum. That's where they had been before, that was kind of Jesus' hometown, his uh, designated local town uh, as a base of his ministry. It was Peter's hometown. It's where they had come from. It's probably where they returned to. They'd come back to Capernaum. And there's a crowd that's eager for more of what Jesus had already done in and around that town. This is a crowd of people. They're gathered around. They're curious and they're excited even. But they're not desperate. What is desperation? You know what desperation is? Desperation is that feeling when you're in such a bad situation that you would do absolutely anything to change it, right? There's a, a, 
widely spread story about that great philosopher Socrates, 400 years before Jesus came on the scene. And uh, a young man came to the great philosopher there in Athens, Greece, and asked him, great Socrates, will you help me to gain knowledge? And Socrates, recognizing uh, a shallow farce when he saw one, he escorted the young man down to the beach, to the edge of the Mediterranean Sea, took him into the water. And he said, now, young man, what is it that you wanted from me again? And the man said, Socrates, I want knowledge. And Socrates shoved the man under the water and held him there for 30 seconds. And then he let him up. And the man, kind of gasping for air, Socrates said, what was it that you wanted? And the man said, knowledge, Socrates, I wanted knowledge. And Socrates shoved him under the water again, held him for 40 seconds, and let him back up. And the man, kind of gasping for air again, Socrates said, what was it that you wanted? And the man said, wisdom, Socrates, I want wisdom. And so Socrates shoves him under the water again, holds him there for a whole minute. The man begins to struggle. And he lets him back up, and the man's practically drowning, gasping for breath. And the man, Socrates, says, what was it you wanted? The man says, air, Socrates, I want air. And Socrates says, as soon as you want knowledge as much as you want that air, then you'll have it. That's desperation. I mean, that's a picture of desperation that this man experienced. And there are two in this crowd who are feeling that desperation. One of them is Jairus. He's a synagogue ruler, Luke tells us. He is an archon, a, a chief, a ruler of the synagogue. And that means probably that he conducted the synagogue worship by designated who would lead different aspects of the worship, who would pray, who would read, who would even preach. He was the worship director of the synagogue there in probably Capernaum. And that means that he's a very highly respected man in the town, a very well-known man. Everybody would know who the synagogue ruler is. And he throws himself here into a very unusual position for such a man. At the feet, he puts himself prostrate at the feet of Jesus laid out on his own knees down at the feet of the rabbi. And why does he do this? Because his need is acute. It's time sensitive. His only daughter, 12 years old, is dying. And Luke tells us that he implored Jesus. He urged him. He exhorted Jesus to please come and help my daughter. She is dying And Jesus apparently agreed, and they began on their way. But then there was a woman, Luke tells us. There was a woman. And we're not told much about her, are we? We're not given a lot of details about who she is. But Luke does tell us what her problem was. She had a flow of blood. The implication is that it was a menstrual cycle problem. And again, we don't know what it was. It was apparently a, a, a pretty serious medical problem that she had. For 12 years, this constant, slow bleed. But it's not just a medical problem she has. In her day and age, it's a religious problem. It's a, a social problem. It's a ceremonial problem because for a Jew... Such a a long bleed meant that she was unclean. In Leviticus 15, you you can read there the the whole sequence of explanation 
through Moses about the various ways in which a person and their life can demonstrate uncleanness. Not necessarily a particular sin, an action of sin, but a circumstance of life that demonstrates the distinction between a holy God and an unholy, broken, and fallen creation. And, in fact, anything or anyone that she touched would become unclean as well. This woman is unclean. And not just for a day, but perpetually. As long as she's bleeding, she's unclean. And she had tried to fix it. She had gone to doctors, to, to physicians. She'd spent all her living on physicians and to no avail. No physician could heal her. She had nowhere else to turn. Um, you've seen that bumper sticker probably. I don't see it often now, uh, but there's this bumper sticker that really annoys me. And it says, um, have you tried Jesus? Or some version of that. It's, it's sort of the implication is, everything else has failed in your life. Why don't you give Jesus a try? And I will tell you, it, it just kind of annoys me. It just kind of gets under my skin when I see a bumper sticker like that because it feels like got milk. You know, it's like this, this kind of consumer marketing sort of scheme. Uh, you know, try it and try whatever else. But then, you know, Jesus is another possible solution. Give him a try. And I just kind of feel like that just that doesn't work. But guess what? This woman is that bumper sticker. I mean, here it is in the gospel accounts. This woman had tried everything else. And she'd heard some things about Jesus, and so she figures, I'm going to give this a try. And it worked. This woman was desperate. So Jairus has a desperate need, right? He, he's, he publicly pleads with Jesus to come and help him. And this woman has a desperate need. She privately approaches Jesus to touch him to try to get fixed. And so here are these two different people, a very respected man, a ruler of the synagogue, and a marginalized woman who is unworthy to enter the synagogue. And they have one thing in common, desperation. Because to some degree, and at some point along the way, desperation precedes faith. Desperation in your own life precedes gospel faith. It, it has to. It has to at some point. I mean, gospel faith will seem most needed when you are desperate. Why? Because when you're desperate, you stop trying to be your own God. When you're desperate, you realize, I can't fix this myself. When you recognize that your addiction is bigger than you are, when you realize that your effort to hide from those around you has completely consumed you to the point that you will do anything you can to prevent being known by the people who are close to you. And when that fear that consumes you, you recognize, just will never dissipate. You just can't get rid of it. When you realize that it's so bad that you will do anything you can to change it, then, and only then, you begin to see that Isaiah was right. A faintly burning wick he will not snuff out. Gospel faith will seem most needed when you are desperate. But it's a faith that also will often make you frustrated. It will make you frustrated. 
Jairus here is first in line, isn't he? I mean, the whole crowd is there waiting, but they're just curious and, and excited. Jairus is desperate, and he's, he's first in line. He, he does things right. He, he comes and he falls prostrate at the rabbi's feet, and he even implores Jesus. He's urgent, right? He's, he's exhorting Jesus, please come and help my daughter. Jairus is first in line, and Jesus accepted his invitation, and time is of the essence. They begin to move. You can picture the crowd beginning to move, and probably the crowd is getting even more excited because they're realizing, hey, there's something for Jesus to do, and we're going to see something that's going to blow our minds. And so, you know, surely their excitement is growing. And the crowd begins to move towards Jairus' house. But then there was a woman. She snuck up behind him. She didn't want to get in the way. She didn't want to cause a commotion at all. She did not even want to be noticed. And she touched him, and Jesus stopped. Who touched me? Who touched me, he wants to know. And the question coming from Jesus even frustrated Peter, right? You can see it there in the text. When nobody admitted to touching him, Peter looked at Jesus and he said, all right, come on, master, look, the crowd is swarming around you. They're all brushing up against you. It's a chaotic scene. Everybody's touching you. What do you mean, who touched me? Peter's frustrated with him. And Jairus at this point is becoming even more nervous, right? Because as the woman is identified and, and the whole scene has shifted from, from a, a motion towards Jairus's house, now it's stopped and it's stagnant. The woman has been identified and Jairus maybe even knows of her. I mean, he's the ruler of the synagogue and she has not been allowed in the synagogue for 12 years. And Jairus is kind of wondering, why are you stopping for this woman? I mean, Jesus, I, I understand she needs your help, but I know what her problem is, and it's a chronic problem. It's a serious problem, but it can wait. It's waited for 12 years. But my daughter is at home dying. Her problem is chronic, but my problem, Jesus, is acute. It's time-sensitive. Hers can wait. I mean, I can understand Jairus. Some would say that Jesus is, in a sense, if he were a doctor here, he's practicing malpractice, medical malpractice. I mean, he's putting off the serious for the insignificant, right? I mean, I know how Jairus feels. I've told you guys this story before. When we lived in Georgia, in Macon, Georgia, one year, just after our twins were born, I had the, the flu virus, and I had, in the middle of the night, a simulated heart attack. The flu virus attacked the tissue of my heart, simulated a heart attack. I didn't know that. I thought I was having a heart attack. And so we got up in the middle of the night, and we did what you should never do. I've told you this before. We did not call 911. If you're having a heart attack, call 911. Okay, that's my public announcement of the day. But we didn't do that. We, we just got in the car, and we drove. Mary's parents were in town. They could stay with the kids. We drove down to the emergency room. Don't do that. Because if you're having a heart attack, they don't care. So we went to the desk there and, and explained, I'm having a heart attack, I need some help. And the lady at the desk, I remember, I don't, she didn't even look up at me. She just said, have a seat over there and wait. And I said, I'm having a heart attack, I need some help. Have a seat over there and wait. And I'm like, there are kids over there with broken arms. I don't care about them. I'm having a heart attack. Help me. 
sit over there and wait. And I'm like, I'm ready to call my lawyer. Okay, so somebody give me a phone. I'm, Jairus at this point is ready to call his lawyer, right? Jesus, seriously? Why are you waiting here? He's frustrated. Jesus has his own way of dealing with timing. He has his own way of dealing with things in our lives. He has his own reasons for doing things, and he won't allow you to impose your own agenda. When you've recognized your desperation, when you lay yourself out before Christ and say, I'm here, Lord, please help me, do you know, do you realize that you still have your own agenda? You still have your own impression and your own idea of what your most pressing needs are, and you want to press those things upon him. You want him to fix it, whatever it is in your life. But guess what? He may not recognize that it as the thing that needs to be fixed. He has his own way of going about things. I mean, Jairus just wants him to fix it. But if Jesus truly has all authority over the natural world and the spiritual world and the physical world, then you have no need to hurry him. You only have need to trust him. He frustrated Jairus' faith by forcing it into the back seat. But he also frustrated this woman's faith by forcing her into the front seat. Do you notice this? I mean, notice her strategy. She had come through the crowd. There's a, a swarm of people there around Jesus, and she comes through the, the crowd. She came up behind him. And in the Gospel of Mark, Mark gives us this detail, apparently that came out in her explanation of things later. Mark tells us that she was thinking... If only I could touch your clothes, Jesus, I would be healed. That was her strategy. She didn't want any attention. She just wanted to sneak through the crowd and touch the edge of his garment and then sneak back. That's that's all she wanted. And she was right. That's all she needed to be healed. That's all she wanted. She, She didn't want an autograph. She didn't want Jesus to stop and look at her. She didn't want him to say anything to her. She didn't want to be noticed at all. She just wanted to touch him and slink away. And it's really a remarkable flicker of faith if you think about it. But it's also a hint of consumer religion. You know, just let me dash in and get the product that I want and then I'll disappear and keep things on my own terms. You've surely never done that, have you? Right? I'm just going to go dash into to church because I want to sing this particular song. Or I, I know the sermon's going to be on this particular text, and I'm curious about that. And then I'm going to dash right back in. I'm just going to keep things on my own, my own terms. But just like Jesus won't let Jairus pressure him into urgency, he won't let this woman consume him like a product. Because while Jairus' faith needs to settle down and believe... Her faith needs to speak up and proclaim itself. So the the woman is frustrated. Why are you making me publicly explain myself? And Jairus is frustrated. Why are you making me wait on this woman? Gospel faith can be frustrating. It's important for us to recognize it. The important truth in, in that matter is that Jesus does not prioritize things the way that we do. He doesn't prioritize a man over a woman. He doesn't prioritize 
the powerful over the weak. He doesn't prioritize the influential over the inconsequential. He doesn't prioritize that way. Because gospel faith in Jesus' eyes is gospel faith no matter who expresses it. A friend of mine 30 years ago in the mid-1980s got a job working uh, for a, a, a few weeks for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association in Europe. It was for a, a conference, a big evangelism conference that the association was putting on there, and, and my friend hired on as a, a driver, kind of a gopher, to help pick people up at the airport and move them around to, to places. And on one occasion, he was in the, the big ballroom of the meeting place for one of the big gatherings, and it was going to be a dinner. It was a, kind of a dinner for, for financial supporters and other important people that were there. And one man, standing by my friend, told him, he said, now, Dr. Graham is going to enter that door over there and, and watch him when he enters. Watch what he does. And my friend said it was fascinating to see because this man explained to him, when Dr. Graham, come, Graham comes in, he is not going to come straight up to these tables where all the dignitaries and important people are. He's going to spend his time walking along the edges of the room, greeting the servers, the people who are bringing the food out, the people who are cleaning up afterwards. He's going to speak to them. He's going to spend time with them, and he's going to tell them how important their work is for his work and how much he appreciates them. He's going to spend time with those people, and he's not going to pay any attention to the dignitaries for quite some time. And my friend said that's exactly what he did. Here's a man whose funeral this week was attended by presidents and who was buried in a pine box made by prisoners from the penitentiary in Louisiana. He only did what he saw Jesus doing. And what Jesus does can frustrate us to no end because we want to impose our own agenda on Jesus. The truth of the gospel is that Jesus doesn't give us what we want when we want it. He gives us what we need in the way and when we need it. And so what he gives this woman is more than what she expected. Verse 48, what does he say to her? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. The the word that Jesus uses there, the Greek word is sozo. Your faith has saved you. It has made you well, but it's done more than just heal your body. It has saved your soul. You're getting more than you bargained for. And what about Jairus then? Verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler's house and said, Your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher any more. What about Jairus? I mean, he's been waiting now for some minutes, and now this is the news that comes to him about his daughter. And Jesus, hearing this, paid no attention, I guess, to the messenger and turned to Jairus himself and spoke to him. He said, do not fear, only have faith, and she will be well. Guess what word he uses there? Sozo. Just have faith, and she too will be saved. Notice the parallelism. The daughter of Jesus, who ironically is a woman who's older than he is, whom he's claiming as daughter, he's saying, you belong to me now. Your faith has saved you. And now news comes of Jairus' daughter who has died. And Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. 
believe in me, and she will be saved too. If gospel faith will seem most needed when you're desperate, even when you're frustrated, gospel faith will always inevitably lead you to be amazed. It will lead you to be amazed. Verse 51, And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the child's father and mother. Jesus is intentionally making this to be a private circumstance. Now, he's limiting the audience. And he would even instruct them, tell no one what had happened. I mean, people would eventually figure it out, right? The the little girl had been known to be dead, and now she's walking around the neighborhood. People would figure it out. But people would be amazed at the wrong thing. The woman's circumstance, she wanted it to be private, but Jesus made it public because there really was nothing visible for people to have seen, and she needed to declare what it was that she had believed and done for her own sake to hang on to the faith that she now had. In Jairus' case, it's very public, but Jesus is turning it into a private affair, isn't he? Because people would be distracted by it. Their faith, as it were, would not have the proper object. Because the amazing thing about the gospel is not the miracles of Jesus. The amazing thing about the gospel is Jesus. The woman's amazement, what what was she amazed about in her circumstance? It's not really clear if she had moved beyond the shock of her healing at this point. The blood flow had stopped immediately, and surely she was amazed by that. But gradually, the point of her amazement over the course of the coming days would change from the simple stoppage of blood to the eternal substitution for sin. Verse 47, When she saw that she could not escape notice, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. Now, again, Leviticus 15 explains that anyone she touches becomes unclean. Okay? So you should be putting the pieces together here and realize what she's feeling. She's trembling. She's afraid because she has, in a sense, been called to the principal's office. She had done wrong. She had intentionally gone out into public, unclean, and reached out intentionally to grab the garment of the rabbi, who now is unclean, or so she should have thought. She thinks she's in trouble. I mean, she had knowingly given her death to Jesus. But the thing is, the amazing thing is, he took it. He accepted it. He received the death that she knowingly reached out and gave to him. And he says to her, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So, have you, in gospel faith, given to God your sin? Have you reached out and given to him the guilt of your own depravity? Have you done that? He will take the guilt of it upon himself, and he will call you daughter. He will call you son, and that is amazing. What about Jairus? What about his amazement? 
when they arrived at the house, there, there are people there gathered around, a crowd of people weeping and mourning, and Jesus corrects them. He says to them, don't weep. She's not dead, but she's sleeping. And, and what did they do? Of course, they laughed at him because they knew what they knew, and they were right. She was dead. And for him to say she's just sleeping was just ridiculous to them. They laughed at him. You're crazy. She's dead. She's not sleeping. And what did he do? Taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. Now, Mark, in his gospel account of this same thing, includes there the, the Aramaic term that Jesus used. And Mark was writing to Romans, to, to Roman Christians and non-Christians, who would have had no interest in Aramaic. And so why would have Mark included the Aramaic words other than the fact that those were the words that Jesus said? He's just quoting what Jesus said. And what Jesus had said was talitha kum. Talitha kum. It's a term of endearment. It's, a, it's an expression of little girl or honey, child. That's what a parent would say to their, to their own kiddo going in to wake them up from a nap on an afternoon. Honey, child, it's time to get up. It's tender, and yet it's powerful at the same time. And Luke tells us, and her spirit returned, and she got up at once. Because the one who has authority over the natural world and the spiritual world and the physical world, to him, death is no more than sleep. It's no more of an obstacle than sleep itself. It is to him no more than you waking your child up from a nap. There's nothing more to it for him than that. And there will come a day if your faith will allow you to believe it, or even if it won't, there will come a day when he will take every one of his daughters and sons by hand and say to them, Talitha, kum, child rise. That day will come, and when he says those words, they will. They will arise, and that is amazing. What is your faith like? What is your faith like? I mean, what, take some stock of your own condition today and evaluate yourself and consider, what, what is my faith like? To what extent do I really believe this, this gospel? In whom is my faith residing? I mean, see these two daughters and recognize that the woman's faith. Take a look at her, her faith just for a, a short second here. Her faith is of very poor quality. I mean, it really is. It's even maybe a little superstitious. She's, she's thinking in her mind, if I can just reach out and touch his garment, I'll be saved. I'll be healed. She's just kind of superstitious. She's really quite ignorant. She's heard some things about him. And she's kind of rolling the dice. She's the bumper sticker, remember? Everything else has failed. I'll try this. Maybe it'll work. Her faith is really very poor quality. And so Jesus, rather than rejecting it, he takes some time to perfect it. Right? He, he calls her out and forces her into the front seat in order for her to see that her faith is not in his clothing. It is in him. And what about the girl's faith? Does this occur to you? The girl's faith is non-existent. She's dead. Now, of course, she had grown up for 12 years in the home of the, the ruler of the synagogue, and so she surely was quite familiar with the synagogue worship and the scriptures. 
and the Passover meal and all those things, she'd had those benefits of gospel indications towards a, a probably growing faith. But her faith is not held out as an example here. It doesn't exist as a character in the story at all. She plays no role except to respond to Jesus' initiation. Whose faith is held out for you here? Her dad's. Her dad's faith is the one that benefits her, and her dad's faith is impatient and worried and fearful. Kind of like yours, right? Your faith, too, is imperfect, and that's okay. Because gospel faith will seem necessary only when you're desperate for Jesus. And gospel faith will not bend to your agenda no matter what you do or think or want. And you will be frustrated by Jesus. And gospel faith will inevitably lead you to be amazed by Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father, help us to believe Help us to recognize the truth of your good news for us and to trust you for it. Lord, we confess that our faith is flawed, that it is weak, that it struggles, that it comes and goes, it ebbs and flows. Some days it's strong and some days it's non-existent almost. And yet, Lord, you in your patience still continue to call us to trust you. Lord, would you do that for us as we approach these communion tables this morning? Would you increase our faith to believe that you have loved us in and through Jesus and that you continue to do that? Make us new, we pray in his name. Amen.